0: Chapter 5 of David Hume and His Influence on Philosophy and Theology This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Read by Will Rodriguez David Hume and His Influence on Philosophy and Theology by James Orr Hume in Relation to Previous Philosophy, His Skepticism it is chiefly in connection with his speculations, in philosophy and morals, that Hume's name will go down to posterity. In other walks of literature, he holds a high and honorable, but by no means a peculiar place. He is unus ex multis, no more. Even as a historian, his fame in later years has been eclipsed by that of abler and more learned and impartial writers. But as philosopher, his speculations have passed into universal thought. Here his niche is his own. There is but one Hume as there is but one Descartes and one Kant. It has been seen that Hume's first and greatest philosophical work was his celebrated Treatise of Human Nature, published anonymously in 1739-1740, to 1740, and that the chief portion of this work was afterwards recast and published in more compact and literary form in the Inquiry Concerning the Human Understanding in 1748. The roots of his system, however, are all to be sought for in the treatise. The aim of both of these works is avowedly to inquire into the nature, operations, and limits of the human mind. The different parts of this inquiry, held to be the grand prerequisite to success in all other departments of human knowledge, are stated with great distinctness in the introductory section of the inquiry on the different species of philosophy. There is first psychology, or as Hume terms it, The geography of the mental faculties. Here at least, he admits, we are on solid ground. The next inquiry is a deeper one. May we not hope, he says, that philosophy, if cultivated with care, may carry its researches still further, and discover, at least in some degree, the secret springs and principles by which the human mind is actuated in its operations. The purpose of his investigation, therefore, is to disclose the ultimate principle or principles of intelligence, to run up all the operations of the mind to some principle which is general and universal. As yet, there is no hint given of his peculiar skepticism. On the contrary, though the investigation is owned to be a difficult one, his tone is courageous and hopeful. He chooses to start with the usual assumption that truth is within our reach, leaving it to his after reasonings to disprove the postulate. It is only as the system advances that we begin to see whither we are drifting. It will facilitate the understanding of Hume's positions, and especially of his skepticism, if, before entering on the details of his system, we look shortly at the antecedents of his thinking in Locke and Berkeley, the philosophers by whom he was most influenced. We shall then consider more precisely the nature of the skepticism itself. Problems of Philosophy Philosophy may be described in general as the study of the nature of knowledge. The real question will be found to be, what is experience? Is sense the whole, or is there a rational factor involved in the constitution of even the simplest experience? It was, however, in the assumption underlying the first question, that Hume and the philosophers who preceded him found their common ground. Whatever differences divided Descartes and Locke on such a subject as innate ideas, They were at one in the fundamental point that the sole object of the mind's knowledge is its own ideas. This was regarded by all thinkers as so self-evident as to need no proof. It is universally allowed by philosophers, says Hume, and is besides pretty obvious of itself that nothing is ever really present with the mind but its perceptions or impressions and ideas and that external objects become known to us only by those perceptions they occasion. From the admission of this position, it has commonly been attempted to show that the whole of Hume's conclusions follow by inevitable sequence. This, we shall see, is only in part correct. The statement is strictly true only of the Lockean or empirical variety of the theory of ideas. Kant, for example, is as subjective as Hume in the assertion that objects are only known to us through the impressions they excite in us, but his theory involves rational elements which save knowledge from the utter disintegration it undergoes at the hands of Hume. It is in the line of the empirical development of philosophy, however, that Hume stands. Hence, it is sufficient to trace the genealogy of his views as proposed from Locke and Berkeley. The answer given by Locke to the question of the origin of knowledge was on lines which the average intelligence of mankind would regard as those of plain common sense. He rejects the hypothesis of innate ideas. The mind has no ideas but those which it derives from experience, and in the first instance, through the gateways of the senses. Prior to sensible experience, the mind is a tabula rasa, a white paper void of all characters without any ideas, an empty cabinet waiting to be furnished with ideas led in by the senses. Knowledge begins with the impressions produced by the outward world on the organs of sense. These, conveyed to the brain, give rise to sensations. Thus, originate ideas of sensation, which are the first kind of simple ideas. Through sensation, the mind receives ideas of the qualities of the things which affect it from without. Through sight, for example, ideas of form and color. Through touch, ideas of hardness, softness, roughness, extension, solidity through hearing, idea of sounds, etc. But next, the mind can reflect on its own operations in dealing with this first class of ideas, as in perception, memory, imagination, reasoning, and on the affections and emotions to which they give rise. And this furnishes it with a second class of ideas, distinguished from the former as ideas of reflection. Simple ideas of both kinds yield through combination, complex ideas, etc. From the ideas derived from these two sources, sensation and reflection, all our knowledge, he contends, is in the last analysis built up. There is another distinction to be observed in regard to these ideas of sensation, from which, according to Locke, our knowledge of the external world is derived. They fall, he explains, into two classes, The one class of ideas are properly only effects produced in us by the operation of external objects, and the idea bears no resemblance to the quality or property in the object which produces it. Such, for example, are the ideas of sweetness, of warmth, of sound, of color, which exist only in the mind and have no resemblance to the physical properties which are their causes. Ideas thus produced in us by properties of body which they in no wise resemble, are called by Locke, ideas of secondary qualities. It is different with the other class of ideas. These, it is held, do resemble, are in a manner of copies or pictures of, the qualities in the object. Thus, the ideas of shape, of figure, of solidity, are produced in us as before by the operation of the object. But, unlike the ideas of the secondary qualities, they have their counterparts and actual qualities of the object which they resemble. These ideas which have qualities and bodies corresponding to them Locke names ideas of primary qualities. The qualities and bodies themselves are similarly distinguished. This eminently common sense account of the origin of our knowledge, however, proves much less satisfactory on closer inspection. The theory bristles, in fact, as the slightest touch of criticism shows with inconsequences. On the one hand, Locke lays down the doctrine that the mind has knowledge only of its own ideas, while to account for these ideas he assumes a world of objects lying beyond consciousness, of which the world within our minds is so far a representation. But what is the warrant for this assumption? How can an idea, which, ex-hypothesi, is wholly within the mind, yield us the knowledge of an object without the mind, or tell us anything of its nature? It is declared that the ideas of primary qualities are copies of qualities in the objects. But how is this to be ascertained? Who can overleap his own consciousness to verify the supposed resemblance? If reliance is placed on the principle of causation, it is easy to retort, as was done by both Berkeley and Hume, that causation gives us no title to infer resemblance in the case of primary, any more than of secondary qualities. And that it does not entitle us to infer a material cause. The cause may be spiritual. Hume adds to this criticism that the whole procedure is illegitimate as going beyond experience. As no beings, he says, are ever present to the mind but perceptions, it follows that we may observe a conjunction or relation of cause and effect between different perceptions, but can never observe it between perceptions and objects. It is impossible, therefore, That from the evidence of any of the qualities of the former, we can ever form any conclusion concerning the existence of the latter, or ever satisfy our reason in this particular. The difficulty on Locke's theory is accentuated by the fact that the knowledge we have of the external world is supposed to be derived wholly from sensation. It will be seen later that sensation, as a mode of pure feeling, can give us no ideas of objects, or of anything beyond its own immediate existence. But even conceding that, through sensation, we have the idea of external qualities. We are only at the beginning of our difficulties. Qualities, as Locke admits when he comes to deal with that subject, do not subsist of themselves. They are modes. And modes, he tells us, are necessarily thought of as inhering in substances. The qualities are qualities of something. But how are we to represent to ourselves this something, this substance, this substratum of qualities, which, after all, is the real being of the thing. It is not an idea of sensation. As little is it an idea of reflection. Whence then is it obtained? On Locke's principles, there is no room for it at all. No idea, therefore, gave him more trouble. He could neither admit it, nor do without it. He could only reiterate that we must suppose a substratum of qualities, though our idea of it is quite obscure. Locke is in equal difficulties when he passes to the idea of self, the abiding subject of the mental states. That self exists and abides, he has no manner of doubt. But whence the idea comes, he has no means of showing. It is not an idea of sense. It is not an idea of a mental operation. Starting from Locke's premise that the immediate objects of all knowledge are ideas, he points it out with perfect, logical conclusiveness that the assumption of a second world of variously qualified things, outside of and behind the world we know, is entirely without justification. How indeed, he argued, can ideas of the mind be copies of qualities of objects which we suppose to subsist apart from, and independently of, mind? Is it not the very nature of an idea, that it exists only in being perceived? Their essay is Perkepi, nor is it possible they should have any existence out of the minds or thinking things that perceive them. Especially does Berkeley direct his artillery against the Lockean assumption of substance. Locke had himself admitted that we have no proper idea of this mysterious something which is made known to us neither by sensation nor by reflection. Berkeley, therefore, justly enough on his premises, swept away these imaginary substances, and with them the world of independently existing objects, and boldly declared that the ideas we perceive by the senses are all the world there is. What we are entitled to infer from their presence is not that there is or can be a world of permanent objects of which our ideas are images, but that our ideas must have some adequate spiritual cause. And this Berkeley finds in the will of God, who ordains the system of the world in the sense that he causes the ideas to appear in regular series and in the orderly connection, which we call laws of nature. Hume's criticism on this theory, or class of theory, in turn, is It is too bold ever to carry conviction with it to a man sufficiently apprised of the weakness of human reason. Though the chain of arguments which conduct to it were ever so logical, there must arise a strong suspicion, if not an absolute assurance, that it has carried us quite beyond the reach of our faculties, when it leads to conclusions so extraordinary and so remote from common life and experience. We are got into fairyland long ere we have reached the last steps of our theory, and there we have no reason to trust our common methods of argument, as if Hume's own reasonings did not conduct to conclusions extraordinary and remote from common life and experience. With regard to mind, on the other hand, Berkeley was plainly in a dilemma, having on Locke's principles discarded substance in the sensible world, It was not obvious how he could, with consistency, retain it in the world of mind. If, however, he could dispense with matter, he, as plainly, could not dispense with mind as a receptacle of his ideas. And, accordingly, at this point he was compelled to take a step which Locke's principles would not justify. This was to concede what he calls not an idea, but a notion, of a self as the permanent subject of mental acts and states. When in his Principles of Human Knowledge, he extends this mode of knowledge by means of notions to relations, he seems on the verge of breaking away from Locke's principles altogether. It is now easy, perhaps, to see in a general way how Hume got his starting point and was led to his main conclusions. He adopts, we must believe in good faith, the principles of Locke and Berkeley and draws them out to their ultimate conclusions. Like these philosophers, he takes it for granted as self-evident that the mind has nothing to work on in knowledge, but its own ideas, or as he prefers to call them, perceptions. The details of his system will occupy us after. Meanwhile, it is not difficult to forecast what kind of consequences were bound to follow from his stringent logical procedure. The idea of substance, of course, goes. Berkeley had already banished it from the material world, and Hume as summarily dismisses it from the world of mind. The bond of identity is cut, and all existence, inner and outer, is resolved into a train of impressions and ideas, originating we know not how, and representing nothing but themselves. Objective reality, as we have been accustomed to conceive of it, disappears. There is no self, no external world, no God, nothing but this stream of perishable perceptions. Still, the irresistible conviction of mankind in the existence of the world and self remains as a fact to be accounted for. Here begins Hume's constructive task, which he seeks to accomplish by showing how association and custom create a species of union among our ideas which we mistake for an objective one. The real bearing of all this will be better understood when we have examined, as we now proceed to do, the precise nature of Hume's skepticism. Philosophy with Hume, as ere long becomes apparent, resolves itself into skepticism, His earliest and most original work represents a vigorous and unsparing attack upon the very foundations of our intelligence, the only object of which seems to be to subvert all rational certainty and, as Dugald Stewart expressed it, to produce in the reader a complete distrust of his own faculties. His skepticism was more thorough and systematic than that of any who had preceded him. The doubt of Descartes was only prized as it led to a higher certainty and the same might be said of the skepticism of Pascal. Hume, on the other hand, never sought to go beyond his doubts, but spent his strength in reducing them to scientific form. Even his professed solutions are avowedly skeptical. Bale had preceded him in the attempt to establish universal skepticism, availing himself for this purpose of the contradictory opinions of different sects and skillfully attacking the grounds on which special dogmas were assumed to rest but Hume, to use his own words, marched up directly to the capital and center of the sciences, to human nature itself, and sought by capturing that to secure an easy victory. He labors to divide the mind against itself, and by involving it in inextricable self-contradictions, to shake the ground of all its certitude. There are, however, certain peculiarities of this skepticism of Hume, which it will be necessary to examine with greater care the more that its exact nature has been made the subject of considerable discussion. One question which has been raised is, did Hume really accept the conclusions of his own system? The late J.S. Mill, for example, in his Examination of Hamilton, broached the peculiar view that Hume's skepticism was simply a thin disguise thrown over his real convictions, intended rather to avoid offense than to conceal his own opinion. He preferred to be called a skeptic rather than by a more odious name and having to promulgate conclusions which he knew would be regarded as contradictory on the one hand to the evidence of common sense on the other, to the doctrines of religion, did not like to declare them as positive convictions but thought it more judicious to exhibit them as the results we might come to if we put complete confidence in the trustworthiness of our rational faculties. This view of Mills is opposed to that of Sir William Hamilton who had represented Hume as reasoning from premises not established by himself, but accepted only as principles universally conceded in the previous schools of philosophy. Mr. Mills' judgment is that Hume seriously accepted both the premises and the conclusions. A narrower inspection may convince us that the truth upon the subject does not lie exclusively with either side. There can be no doubt that whatever may have been Hume's real opinions His avowed sentiments were those of a skeptic and his reasonings lay all in that direction. He was always ready to plead the privilege of a skeptic and no doubt correctly interpreted his own state of mind when he wrote, A true skeptic will be diffident of his philosophical doubts as well as of his philosophical convictions. On the other hand, it must be conceded to Mr. Mills' view that so far as Hume could allow himself to attain to certainty about anything He was perfectly serious both in his philosophical starting point and in the main conclusions to which his reasonings conducted him. He was playing neither with himself nor with his reader. It is thus, he would hold, we must think if we are to think philosophically at all. It is difficult to doubt his sincerity in his acceptance of his fundamental position, that the mind has nothing present to it but its own perceptions, or his bona fides in the use he makes of his grand canon that every idea must be the copy of a previous impression. He would admit that the same certainty does not attach to all his hypotheses in accounting for the particular beliefs of men. But on the whole, he is satisfied with the explanations he gives, is sure at any rate that if it is not quite thus, it is somehow thus that the thing has come about. We may safely assume that his conviction was as entire as in such a mind it could be, that there is no necessary connection between cause and effect, no substantiality in self or things, no external world apart from our perceptions, no principle stronger than association connecting our ideas. There is not, however, the inconsistency which might be supposed between this appearance of certainty in Hume's convictions and the statements formerly made as to his skepticism. The true explanation, as was previously pointed out, Undoubtedly is that Hume's reasonings, pushed to their issues, had a yet more fatal effect than the overthrow of the beliefs of ordinary common sense. They destroyed the authority of reason itself. Mr. Mill had a difficulty in understanding how Hume, if really a skeptic, could reason so seriously and accurately throughout the course of his main discussions. Does not this, he held, imply a certain faith in the operation of the rational faculty? He overlooked that if Hume's premises and conclusions are accepted, there is no rational faculty left for us to have faith in. In the last result, reason, or what we call such, destroys its own claim to credit. There is no rational self, no rational instrument which self-employs, only combinations of impressions and ideas engendered through association and custom. If it is still argued that this is incompatible with the evident earnestness which Hume shows in reasoning out his conclusions, the answer is furnished by Hume himself. In the Treatise of Human Nature, he has expressly met this objection, and, as the passage casts perhaps a stronger light on the real spirit of that book than any other, we make no apology for quoting it. If the skeptical reasonings be strong, they say tis a proof that reason may have some force and authority. If weak, they can never be sufficient to invalidate all the conclusions of our understanding. The argument is not just. Reason first appears in possession of the throne, prescribing laws and imposing maxims with an absolute sway and authority. Her enemy, therefore, is obliged to take shelter under her protection, and by making use of rational arguments to prove the fallaciousness and imbecility of reason, produces in a manner a patent under her own hand and seal. This patent has at first an authority proportioned to the present and immediate authority of reason, from which it is derived. But as it is supposed contradictory to reason, it gradually diminishes the force of the governing power, and its own at the same time. Till at last they both vanish away into nothing by a regular and just diminution. It requires considerable faith after this to believe that Hume put complete confidence in the trustworthiness of our rational faculty, as Mr. Mill has little doubt that he did. Mr. Mill is certainly in error when he affirms that any intimations to the contrary are found only in a few detached passages in a single essay, that, on the academical or skeptical philosophy. The treatise of human nature abounds with them. In the enquiry, no doubt, in harmony with the moral purpose of his philosophy, to clear the way for an easy, humane, and obvious treatment of moral subjects By removing the abstruse philosophy forever from the field, Hume tries to soften the impression of the earlier work by toning down his skepticism to a very considerable extent. He still advocates skepticism, but more by insinuation than assertion. And the skepticism is of a mitigated kind. In all essential respects, however, the main principles of the two words are the same. In both, Peronism holds the field so far as reason is concerned, though Hume, in the enquiry, affects to jest at its curious researches and to temper its excess of doubt by appeal to natural instinct. But even in the treatise, it is not pretended that the skepticism of reason can maintain itself against the non-rational force of instinct, the very contrary. It is happy, he says, in the conclusion of the passage above quoted, therefore, That nature breaks the force of all skeptical arguments in time and keeps them from having any considerable influence on the understanding. Were we to trust entirely to their self-destruction, that can never take place until they have first subverted all conviction and have totally destroyed human reason. Thus, the skeptic still continues to reason and believe, even though he asserts that he cannot defend his reason by reason. And later, this skeptical doubt both with respect to reason and the senses, is a malady which can never be radically cured, but must return upon us every moment. However, we may chase it away, and sometimes may seem entirely free from it. It is impossible upon any system to defend either our understanding or our senses, and we but expose them further when we endeavor to portray them in that manner. As the skeptical doubt arises naturally from a profound and intense reflection on those subjects, it always increases the further we carry our reflections, whether in opposition or conformity to it. Carelessness and inattention alone can afford us any remedy. Beyond this, Hume never got at any stage. This indeed is one feature and main point in his skepticism. To show that what our reason constrains us to regard as false and contradictory, our natural instincts compel us to believe and act upon as true. He does not deny us the luxury of believing in an external world, in the soul, in the necessary connection of causes and effects. He only shows that we have no reasonable ground for so doing. That reason is diametrically opposed to such belief. Practically, things remain as they are. Theoretically, they are subverted. The skeptical arguments like those of Berkeley admit of no answer and produce no conviction. Only when we venture to transcend the range of common experience and begin to think or speak of such far more important subjects as God, immortality, providence, creation, destiny, does Hume bring in his doubt to show us that such sublime topics are entirely beyond our reach, are in fact as exercises of mind, extravagant and ridiculous. This is indeed the great use of his philosophy, to scare us from these abstruse studies by revealing to us the incapacity and fallibility of the mind that proposes to deal with them. The worst effect of a skepticism like Hume's is that it must inevitably react to vitiate the mind that indulges in it, and to unfit that mind for earnest dealing with any subject whatever. It destroys the power of close and patient investigation for the sake of the truth itself. All throughout, the reader is sensible of this defect in the works of Hume. In his later writings especially, we are made to feel as compared with his earlier, a growing want of strictness in method and the absence of a fresh interest in the subjects of which he treats. On the other hand, we mark an increased elegance of style, and a more concise and effective presentation of his separate ideas. Hume's skepticism particularly unfitted him for doing justice to men whose minds were possessed by warm and earnest convictions in regard to the unseen, and whose lives were actuated by correspondingly high motives. To enter into the ideas and experiences of such men was utterly beyond his power. His two ready categories here are superstition and enthusiasm, and to one or other of these every inexplicable phenomenon in the moral and religious history of mankind is unhesitatingly referred. Hume forgets that if practical instincts have validity in the lower sphere, they are no less necessary and valid in the higher. Men need convictions in regard to the ideal and unseen quite as much as in reference to the seen and temporal. A skepticism, like Hume's, is, as he rightly says, incurable. Diffidence in regard to the operations of intelligence in difficult and recondite subjects is one thing. Distrust of the principles on which all truth and certainty depend is another. It is useless to ask in Hume's philosophy whether the error may not lie in the road by which conclusions have been reached, and whether another line of reasoning might not correct that error and put us in the path of truth. The very asking of that question implies the supposition of and comparison with a realm of truth to which our faculties stand in relation and within which the discovery and recognition of truth is believed to be possible. Such a conception of a rationally constituted universe to which reason in man stands in essential relation is precisely what Hume's philosophy excludes. It is not considered that the very fact that man can conceive of such a region of truth even so far as to be at the trouble of denying the power of the mind to reach it, is itself a proof of his existence. For the mind that can deny rationality in the universe, in the very act of its doing so, proclaims itself rational, and the universe as well. End of chapter 5. Recording by Will Rodriguez.